0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Dr. Chuck Vollmer is a hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, we delve into Dr. Vollmer's training pathway, his passion for the pancreas, and why he has done over a thousand peer reviews for surgical journals. Dr. Vollmer, thank you very much for joining us today on Cold Steel. We really appreciate your time, uh, especially amidst all this craziness, and we thought We'd start by just asking you to tell us, uh, for especially for listeners who don't know you as well, where you grew up, what attracted you, you to medicine, and uh, about your training pathway.
2: Okay. Well, I'm really pleased to be with you today. It's a great honor. been a good friend of uh, Chad's for a long time in our professional careers, and um, really pleased to bring what I can to this podcast. It's something new for me. So uh, I grew up in... Uh, a great American city of Philadelphia. Um, uh, it's really kind of ingrained in my, my heart and soul. Uh, it's where I, you know, came, came from. It's my roots. I was ultimately able to get back here, um, after a long training mode that I'll get into at some point, but started out as a kid. Um, actually my father's a banker and, and we had to go away for, uh, four years in my early formative years, uh, uh to London, England. Uh, for a stint that he had there, and that was pretty influential on me, because it really made me um, very formal. Uh, I really uh, adopted the British uh, education uh, uh, and the British ways of life at a very early age. I still can't spell very well because of that, um, but I learned a lot um, uh, at the outset uh, from the structure uh, of uh, British society. And I came back to Philadelphia. I went to prep school um, uh, in uh, the area, and and I kind of credit that to to really being important in developing my critical thinking skills, and uh, particularly in how to make an argument. Um, we had a, a very cha- I had a very challenging high school experience that way to sort of always put you um, out there to make your uh, points and defend yourself. Um, well, ultimately, went off to University of North Carolina uh, just after Michael Jordan had, had left. Uh, my family uh, had been there. My parents had both been there. And ultimately, my son uh, uh, went there as well. So we're very, very uh, fond of Chapel Hill. Now, in terms of my medicine background, uh, I basically have nurses all around me in my family. My grandmother, my mother, my sister, and my wife are all nurses. Uh, it kind of all started out with basically pulling off some of my mother's uh, nursing textbooks uh, when I was about 8, 9, 10 years old and starting to read them and getting fascinated with anatomy. Uh, it just stuck with me really early. And I pretty much knew around the age of 10, 11, 12 that I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and uh, because of the anatomy, uh, uh, very on, a surgeon is what I wanted to be. So I'm one of those unique people who sort of had a past. Directed from the outset, I actually received *Grey's Anatomy* at the age of 11 from my grandparents uh, because they saw my investment in, in that, at that point, point. Um, and I, I just uh, I still have that book and I have the highlighting that I put into the book at that point. So uh, I was on the on the path pretty pretty early. I then got the opportunity to, to spend my summers in college at Fox Chase Cancer Center here in Philadelphia. Um, as I was really interested in cancer as a concept. But I was able to spend that time basically as a gopher for the chair of surgery, chair of surgical oncology. So I got to see his whole gig, Um, the uh, uh, research things that he did. I was actually in his research lab for a number of years, uh, as well as uh, seeing patients uh, that, you know, in my high school years, basically uh, in the office with him. And actually sitting in and hearing uh, administrative uh, responsibilities and those kind of things a long way. So I got a very good picture early on of what academic surgery was about. And um, I was actually seeing whipples and liver resections at the age of nineteen. And I think like when you see that, you're like at the ultimate plateau of what surgery is all about from the outset. Everything else is is a long way down. And I will say that probably cre- I will credit that for how I. Got into the field that I am with pancreas surgery.
1: I was able to go to medical
2: school at a great surgical training grounds, Jefferson University here in Philadelphia, um, the home of Samuel Gross, uh, also uh, the place where the heart-lung machine was made with um, uh, Dr. Gibbon, uh, and it has a very proud tradition. It, it, it makes surgeons. A, um, a, a, a very big proportion of the um, student body goes into a surgical field. So it was a really good place for that. Now, at that point, I wanted to get out of town. Uh, I come back to Philadelphia and uh, kind of uh, was sort of tired of the northeast, and I was hellbent on getting back to the south or the west. It turns out I ended dead center in the middle of the country at WashU for residency, WashU of St. Louis. Um, it was the, probably the best thing. I walked into the doors of Barnes Hospital and I knew immediately just walking into the hospital that I felt comfortable there and my interview day was perfect. And um, it was the place for me. And what I really was influenced there uh, was the, the, by the chairman, Sam Wells, was the structure of the program uh, and the intensity of it. And it was just a great training ground. It's one of the top five uh, surgical training um, groups in, in uh, all of America and it continues to be that way. He was gracious enough to allow me to go to um, UCLA to do my research years and actually to sort of fly the coop from the Wash U um, research endeavor. Uh, and uh, he allowed me to do that because he knew that I would be going to a very prominent MD-PhD surgeon scientist lab with Jim Economo, ultimately a, a, a president of the American Surgical um and i went there to study gene therapy for hepatocellular cancer um it was um a great experience uh the basic science elements that i learned from jim about how to make a hypothesis and think and um attack um uh study designs and all that kind of stuff still live with my clinical research um endeavors today And ultimately went back to st louis finished the residency and then it was off to fellowship in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, probably the best uh, part of my life uh, was that fellowship experience.
0: Chuck, I think I think uh, you know certainly for those of us that do HPB, we know the weight and the, in particular, the history of the Toronto fellowship program that that you were uh, you were engaged in. And as you also know, we recently had Paul Grigg on the on the podcast and you know i sort of told some stories in that podcast a little bit about how he he was so formative for me you know even as a medical student around him on his rotation two or three times and how much he taught me and and then of course you know as i as i came through training and and then started as a junior staff he was still a, a real guiding light in my professional and to be honest personal career as well i was curious what what are some of the things that paul uh, taught you and and that you carry with you
2: so, you know, we just recently had the opportunity to celebrate Paul's retirement at the HPBA meeting. It was a great, great. opportunity to bring all the, the former fellows together. Uh, great evening to celebrate his brilliance, basically. Um, but uh, what I've always said, and I said there, this there is that um, Paul is the heart and soul of the Toronto program. I mean, we know what Bernie Langer uh, did to make it. We know the um, brilliant people uh, involved in the faculty. When I was there, there were basically six faculty, all of which were professors at that point in time. Um, you know, Gallinger, Cottrell, uh, Paul, uh, and and others. And it was um, uh, just ideal place to be. But Paul is basically the humanity of the program. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's who he is. You know, he is a person. He is a real human being. I'll tell you a couple you know, influential things that I remember about Paul. It all started on the first day when I showed up. It was Elijah Dixon and myself and Ian McGilvery. We were the three uh, fellows. And I came all spruced up, uh, really tight and uh, wound up as an American, uh, you know, wearing my coat and tie and the likes. Paul's there in jeans and a polo shirt. Uh, first day, it was a weekend. Uh, Elijah's there and, and Scrubs and, and Ian as well, and I sort of the, uh, kind of got the message immediately about how it's going to be up there, a little bit more relaxed, um, but uh, he welcomed me immediately on day one as a colleague, uh, as a true colleague, not a uh, pupil at that point. Uh, I remember we were looking at a Zollinger-Ellison uh, patient, uh, and uh, it was very complex, multiple surgeries into it, and uh he turned to me and said, So Chuck, how do you do this in St. Louis? How do you do this in St. Louis? You know? So he was he wanted to know. He was probing. He was out there and, and he wanted to, to know that my opinion and and thoughts would, would be valued immediately. Uh and I thought that was just a great um, you know, setup for the whole thing. I do remember a, a time when I, we were always talking to scrub sink. We we Really use that opportunity for the educational um, uh, moments, uh, like we used to a lot in the old days. Uh, less so now, but I remember at a time we were uh, about to go in on a case, and we were talking about the the resident, the chief resident that we would be working with. That's one thing about Paul is he he brings everyone into the case, and he's able to dole out graded responsibility. You know, the the intern gets the gallbladder, the resident does uh you know certain elements and the fellow does the you know things that are more suited for them so he's able to choreograph that but i remember being at the sink and and basically saying something very you know punky you know i said you know this this resident uh you know that we're worth here is worthless um and uh he you know kind of stepped back and said whoa you know take it easy boy um, and he said, uh, you know, th- these people need something from you. Okay. Um, you can, y- y- you can't write them off. And, um, why don't you sort of, uh, invest in, uh, getting them better in that case? And he actually, uh, in cha- he challenged me to engage with, uh, that, you know, people who I thought were sort of a lost cause or, or had no value. He also uh, taught me how to have patience, uh, in that process. And I will say that Paul invested time in me. Um, I remember hours side by side in his office over his, you know, sharing his computer screen, trying to write things. He saw that I was a energetic, enthusiastic person with with some horsepower. I had ideas. I wanted to, to put them out there into the academic realm. He was not that way by nature. He was not an academic not well published, but he knew how to think and he knew how to, to to reason through things. And he sat there with me academically and he put in the hours with me. And that was a great role model for what I would ultimately, you know, do as a, a investigator and a mentor to people. And I think the last thing I'd say about Paul is that he showed me that teaching has a methodology. Um, he was so far out. In front of the curve of this, I mean, this is years before we even formed the fellowship process at the HPDA that he championed. But there was a methodology for how to uh, uh, teach people. And I, I learned his tricks and tricks of the trade and his skills. It's also something I took to my next, my first job at Harvard where I um, actually got very enthused about medical education and, and the likes and did a fellowship in medical education there. Uh, largely because I was uh, stimulated by what he had shown me, the path he had shown me. He's just a great guy, and, and it's going to be, you know, a, a hard thing for Toronto not to have him there, uh, as well as the HPV world.
1: We wanted to ask you about what clearly is a passion for you, which is the pancreas. Why? Why you sort of alluded to it a little bit in that you you saw pancreas and whipple operations at a very early age but what's so appealing to you about the pancreas and and why has that become such a a huge uh, passion for you
2: yeah so uh, i'll get back to what i why i sort of told you my story as a youngster is uh, i was just attracted to anatomy first and foremost just totally fascinated by the human body and its function and form and all that kind of stuff and um i've i as time went on i sort of always um have felt that abdominal a anatomy is the best i mean it's just from a uh, function from a um, uh, functional standpoint uh working in the abdomen is very challenging complex and, and it takes a lot to understand it you know perhaps only the other thing that was maybe more attractive was the head and neck in terms of the complexity of things but the, the abdomen sort of got it but uh, originally, uh, you know, having my experience with Fox Chase, I wanted to go on a path of surgical oncology. And back in the 80s, that was, you know, sort of the, um, the new kid on the block. Uh, the surgical uh, oncologist was the general surgeon who did all the great cases, who did the big stuff and, and did it, uh, the complex stuff that was hardest. But, you know, essentially in my lab years is where this happened, um, the conversion, you know, second, third year when I went to the lab, I started to think about the the next steps and the, the fellowship process. And basically in the early 90s, the balkanization of general surgery had already, you know, moved ahead. And it was actually Steve Strasberg, another Torontonian, who had just come down from um, uh, there to start the GI surgery division at, at Wash U, who showed me the way. And he basically said, you know, uh, taught me that, organ-based training is is really the you know a a great way to do it. Um I wasn't so interested in learning about all about cancer for the whole body. I was much more geared to the niche at that point as were a lot of other people. So organ-based training came in vogue and that's really when the rise of HPV surgery happened. When I trained there were only two or three fellowship options. We didn't have um, the potpourri that we have available now. So, um, that sort of got me going there. Now I liked cancer conceptually and the diseases, the pancreas were very challenging. Okay. Particularly cancer for it. So I think that's another thing is that I was, I'm, I'm up for a challenge. I'm always, you know, stimulated to compete and, uh, to attack, uh, things. And, uh, this was sort of an ultimate challenge to get into that. I also wanted to, as I grew in, into the fel- uh, residency and, and such, I wanted to excel at the highest level of technical proficiency. And you understand that when you get into the uh, pancreas, the um, transplant uh, and liver surgery, you know, you're uh, pretty much up in the big big leagues. And in fact, a little story from, from my experience in Germany is that you know, of all the training pyramid uh, that you go forth in a fellowship process over in the German system, turns out that pancreas is at the very pinnacle of the pyramid. Um, about seven or eight years into training, uh, do you get the opportunity to um, be to do pancreas surgery? And that's actually after liver transplantation in their paradigm. Um, so finally, I'd say uh, the other in- very influential thing for me is the role models in the field attracted me in their styles. I like their, their, uh, uh, comportment. I like their bravery, their grace. Uh, I found them to be scholarship. It's a very, uh, much and, and, uh, embrace scholarship. And I was really, uh, these were aligned with the characteristics that I admired. Um, uh, I'm actually stimulated, uh, that I have not actually mastered this craft yet. And that keeps me going. And that, you know, I think that's the challenge of pancreas. I guess my last little nugget here is, uh, you know, Mike Sarr uh, is a very well-known person in, in general surgery, but he's basically from the Hopkins um, stable. And uh, he, he basically was invested in the pancreas. And I remember hearing him say, this is my organ. You know, there was a, there was a sense of possession there, a sense of wonder, sense of, Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go figure this thing out because it's got so much challenge. And, you know, I I kind of aligned with that sort of frame of mind. Like I want to go all in and see where this goes.
0: You you know, it's interesting listening to you talk about that Chuck. You know, it, it makes me think a little bit going back to Paul Gregg, you know, Paul Gregg would have said the same thing about the liver and it was always impressive to watch him debate, you know, chemotherapy trials with the medical oncologists and, and, uh, you know, pathology with a pathologist. It's, it's a remarkable privilege and, and an amazing thing to watch when someone like you or him is fully focused on, on the depth of, of a given organ or, or a relatively narrow field. Not surprisingly, I think, then um, you know, in your career so far, you've published a number of really impressive landmark papers, publications, um, not only in the pancreas, but in particular the pancreatic fistula and, One of the things that you know we've been a beneficiary of in Calgary, both Elijah Dixon and myself and our and our other partners is is inclusion into your really multinational, essentially global pancreatic fistula study group. And I was curious how you know how you got that started, uh, what the challenges were, how besides as as you point out your personal engine and horsepower, how has that group and and your and your research program remained so productive and so innovative and been able to moderate, you know. I would argue, and I mean this in a, in a very uh, uh, collegial and nice way, moderate some pretty big eagles globally to produce that kind of um, that kind of result.
2: Yeah, well, I think it, it all starts with the, the problem, the question, and and what pancreas official is all about. I mean, it is uh, you know the the classic Achilles heel, but it's. <laughs> it's this it's the source of all of our um concern uh in the field i mean uh from a technical standpoint uh it's the biggest problem we have to deal with and it impacts patients terribly and it also impacts us as the surgeon it's terrible when you think that you've done your best job and you've uh that you are technically sound and adept and you put something together and it just craps out Uh, and your, your head, your head scratching. What's going on? How did this happen? How could it happen? Et cetera. I actually started my interest in this back in medical school. I was on the GI surgical service in the early nineties. And I just remember my, my role in the morning was to go, you know, do the uh, notes and do the rounds. And then we started out in the ICU. And, you know, back then for GI surgery, the ICU was the killing fields. It was terrible. I mean, there were five to ten people on the service in the ICU at all times, and I remember distinctly, you know, looking at these abdomens that were open, that had um, six drains coming out of them, every humor coming out of them, and thinking, you know, how do peop- How does a person survive this? How do people? Why are we? <laughs> why are we in this state? And how do we get through it? So, you know, at that point, I realized that this is just a big problem. And I think you have to attack big problems, you know, to get on. I think your your relevance in the field is going to be dictated by, you know, what you're actually studying. So when I got to the point of being uh, in an attending and going on my research path, I realized that there was a community of like-minded peers interested in asking questions and studying them. I, I, I credit Pancreas Club for this and and other societies where you can get in the same room and ideas fly and you see the interest and the wonder that other people have Uh, and you can just, you know, bounce things off each other. So what I was struck with by my peer group is that we were actually less interested in our egos uh, and our own personal, uh, you know, uh, career trajectories as we were in Defining problems, asking what they are, and answering them, and coming to a collective um, to to put them together. I think that this sort of distinguishes my mid-career peer group from our predecessors in a way, um, in that we, you know, uh, were more comfortable working together as a group. I think. So, um, what I also realized at that point is that uh, the you know literature anymore or in the early, mid-2000s, you know, it couldn't be generated by standalone centers anymore. It just wasn't good enough to have a single center experience of 200 cases. Uh, the statistics didn't allow for it. The the um, uh, uh, things that you would, uh, uh, your, your conclusions that you would make um, uh, weren't strong enough uh, and the variability wasn't there. So you needed the N and you needed variety. That's, I mean, that's really the strength of our literature now is mm-hmm. to be getting in there. So uh, I basically, you know, in terms of the group, I, I basically developed a business plan in essence. I remember like any of the big projects I've, I've conducted with, with groups, I, I, I put out a, uh, you know, a, a document. Here is the plan. Here are the thoughts. Here's the approach. Here's the methodology we would use. We, we would. I invited people to come in and join in. And, you know, I think at the outset, uh, it was easy to get my friends together to do it, but then we got more important people and bigger centers and, you know, bigger names and the likes, you know, people who were advanced and older than I was and had their careers already made. And they joined in because they saw, saw that we had some momentum going. And I will say, I've always felt the pressure that this group is, is, you know, we, we have to do it well, we have to do it right and fairly, and we want to come out with the best product that's there, and fortunately, this particular experience has been very successful. We've had a number of papers at the highest level of surgical impact journals, and uh, I think people see that that quality, and it fuels the fire. So, yeah. we had originally developed a risk score for fistula, but we needed to extend it It function, function, its functionality basically. And to do that, we needed variance in practice. So, um, uh, you know, it's been productive because actually, for this problem, officially, we have so many questions to ask. I'm really grateful to my colleagues who have allowed me to take the lead, and I'm grateful to them for their tireless efforts uh, in the detailed data accrual. And this was basically uh, a partnership between attending, uh, you know, thought-level, attending-level people, driving young trainees who are interested in getting into the field who are doing a lot of the the hump work for us. So, in essence, I'd say our data set that that made this group is a hybrid between big data like NISQIP, NIS, you know, administrative stuff, with its lack of granularity. And then the hybrid with the practice level kind of granularity. And that's allowed us to look at the technical details of, of the surgery. Um, you, you brought up the word egos. Uh, I don't see the egos. Uh, I really don't. Um, uh, we're all um, uh, enthused to find out the path forward in our field and how to improve. And I think that that's, um, you know, set the egos aside. I've had nothing but... Um, Uh, Good things to say about how we've um, worked together as a group, uh, bringing uh, the smart uh, people together to to answer these questions.
0: Well, I think, again, it's such a huge tip of the hat to you, Chuck. You know, it's your motor and your vision and your ability to bring all these groups globally together together. Um, and again, some of the papers that you've produced are fantastic. And as you may know, you know, we just had a, a recent podcast with a guy named Shazir Karmali, who's a high-volume bariatric surgeon in Canada, and he talks specifically about your uh, intersection of Whipple's and bariatric paper and how that's changed that field entirely. So, some of the creative tangential thinking that you're that you're showing is is really, really quite interesting. And I think. You know, people in all fields should pay attention to what you're doing because I agree with you. This this way of accumulating data and and collaboration and and, and quite an honestly, groups think um, is certainly the way forward. It's interesting you, you mentioned the Pancreas Club, you know, as probably you. That's one of my very favorite meetings. And I always thought the name was a little bit um, underrepresentative of the science and the collaboration that goes on there because it is a big meeting and it, it is so exciting. Similarly, you know, you just finished your your presidency of the Americas HBB Association, which is I would argue certainly, you know, in the Americas our our pinnacle group. How was that experience for you? I mean, I know one of the things you clearly did was develop a long term strategic plan for the the association. Um, you did a bunch of other things, of course, too. But uh, how did you uh, how did you deal with challenges? How did you enjoy that? What was that experience like?
2: Yeah, so you know. The HPVA is the most important professional experience I've been through. Um, you know, it's basically my adult fraternity. Uh, I was a, a big fraternity kid in college. You know, the, the, the principles of fraternity are scholarship, fellowship, connection, um, uh, philanthropy, uh, the likes, uh, these are sort of the bedrocks of what fraternities are, are about, despite the you know, public image on them. And I would say that, you know, this was basically my, uh, I found a new home in that, in my adult life through uh, the HPBA. Now, I talked about the balkanization of general surgery, the move to specialization. You know, right now we are in the age of specialty societies. Um, regional societies are withering away in terms of relevance. Uh, national um, uh, uh, societies have their purposes, but realistically the enthusiasm of surgeons is in the um, domain that they live day by day. So that's why the HPBA uh, became um, so important uh, to me. And I, I remember back to Paul again, um, you know, I, I've, introduced him to the HPBA I was a fellow uh, and I had a number of pr- presentations and I asked him to come you know support me at the meeting in 2003 I think it was and uh, he really hadn't been there yet and he came down and he came over to me midway through and he said I'm so glad you brought me here Chuck he said these are my people <laughs> you know he was just he found, wow. you know, the, the fraternity there. And that was the fuse for, you know, for him and what he did for the organization, uh, which was pretty amazing thereafter. We're indebted to what he did for the education fellowship elements. But that's what it was all about. It was like you, we, the thing about HPBA is the um, camaraderie, I think, is the strongest part of it. And it's just a great um, energetic time of year to get together with your friends Um, uh, uh, once again. so Now, the presidency was basically the culmination of about 20 years of involvement uh, from when I was a resident, actually, uh, when I gave my first presentation as a chief resident there. Uh, And then, uh, ultimately, about 10 years of investment as a leader in there. And I I was party to the membership committee, kind of uh, pulled on my former past as a rush uh, chair of my fraternity uh, to, you know, become uh, a, a person enthusing uh, in getting people involved in the organization and then the program committee. And then ultimately the, the leadership uh, points thereafter. And I'd have to tell you for the young people out there, you know, who kind of look at, at the leaders of the field and how'd you get there. And I'm just going to tell you the, the answer is what Mark Callery told me once, um, about how he he got to his high level, level leadership places, it's all about su- sweat equity. You got to put effort into it. You got to bring ideas. You got to bring energy, and you got to be creative. Uh, and when you do that, you'll be seen. Um, and I'll, I'll also credit this too about the organization, Pancreas Club HPBA. Um, you got to go and um, you know tell people who you are, or let them see who you are. Uh, you can't be, um, a wilting lily on the sideline. Get up to the microphone, uh, be part of the discussion, uh, you know, put yourself out in, into the spotlight a little bit. Let people know what you know and what you think. And, and, and good things will happen from that. And I, I, I was very aggressive early in the career at these places to, um, you know, not sit in the background, but get up and, Pose some questions and and um, uh, give some perspectives, and I think that helped me out a lot. For that, now you know, essentially, as as we got to the top here at, at the presidency, um, I felt that. So I'm I'm at heart a, str- a strategist. Uh, I'm always sort of looking. Uh, I love games. I love the strategy elements of games, and I, I've always thought about my career on the long term. Uh, I've always enjoyed strategy, so. It's kind of natural that when I got to the presidency, that was what we were going to do. And, and we hadn't really invested in, in thinking for the future for about a decade or more. Uh, it seemed to me that we were straying into a number of boutique kind of niched endeavors, often driven by the upper leadership's personal interests, each of which I will fully say advanced the society greatly, but it was getting to the point where we were sort of relying on what was the president's gig, what were they into, and that's what was going to happen for this. And I actually wanted to take a step back from that and secure the structure and the function of the organization and and maybe sort of refocus on what the membership would, was wanting and, and their needs. And and I thought it was a good time to do that and, and bring my my strategy, you know, so, um, elements into it. Um, I felt that we needed to chart some new horizons for the future. And our it, this was the 25th year of our anniversary. It gave us a lot of um, uh, it was the ideal opportunity to to sort of take off from the past and uh, project forward to the future. And, and with that, um, ultimately my, the nature of my presidential address was the, um, the title, Get Better. And, uh, what it was is to, to look back at, you know, how we got to that point, uh, of celebrating our know, 25th anniversary, but, um, what were the things that we needed to go forward with? And, and I, I think, you know, a lot of this had to do with shoring up the functionality of, uh, the organization as well as the financial security that would allow us to give products and give value to the members. That's what they want from this organization, um, and we needed to to get get the, uh, the tools for
0: that. Yeah, I have to say, Chuck. You know, at least in my my professional practice, sort of straddling the HPB world and straddling the trauma world, both in Canada, in the U.S., and then globally, the HPBA is a is a unique, almost unique organization. Um, for so many of the reasons that, that you, that you've stated so eloquently, it's, it's a really neat place to be. And, and to be fair, we have to give you credit in terms of the Canadian HPB Association because our sort of strategic planning that we went through as a process, uh, last September, um, was essentially an emulation of, of what you did on a smaller scale. So thank you for that. If we shift gears, yeah, it was good. It was actually a really very productive uh, process. You know, the association's just over ten years old now, and it was time for us to do that as well. Um, If we shift gears here a little bit, you do a ton of peer reviews uh on on submission publication submissions for a variety of journals. And I, I think I do too, and I don't really want to talk about you know my view of it. Um, but I know you're, you and I are sort of similar, probably about one a day. And I think people look at that and say, oh, my God, that, that's craziness. But I wanted to ask you and put it out there as to, as to why you think that process is so important and, and why you engage in it so vigorously.
2: Yeah, so maybe not one a day, but I, I did look back and recently I've, I've tallied how many re- reviews I've done. I've done over a 1,000 reviews. So I think it comes back to the fact that um, literature. I feel literature is the bedrock of our practice, uh, and I think that there's a sanctity to the literature in that uh, it's the it should be the truth, and it should be based on solid analysis um, to get to the truth. And it's sh- you know the the facts that come out in literature should be airtight and things that we can believe in to project forward get back to Toronto in a way uh, for this, uh, because my, my experience with this started with Bernie Langer. Um, he introduced this to me. You know, I was a fellow and he had a paper to review. Uh, it was on high-datted cysts. Um, it was from Turkey and, um, you know, hotbed for that disease process. And as an HPV fellow, I was sort of just, you know, s- diving in the pool on all these topics of HPV and I really didn't know much about it. So it challenged me. To, to have to study the the problem that I was reading about. Um, but I remember, you know, working hard on it and giving him back a, a thing that was pretty bland and kind of complimentary and um, it wasn't really that um, scathing. And I remember him looking across the desk and saying, Charles, you are too kind. <laughs> And uh, he then went on to sort of inculcate me into the fact that uh, peer review is a duty and it's a process that needs to be um, done um, with the utmost respect uh, for those principles I had just told you. Um, he basically told me, you know, it's, it's our duty to make sure that what's in the literature is actually credible and real and that garbage uh, gets thrown out. And, and that that kind of st- the stuff that isn't um, worthy uh, for whatever reason doesn't see the light of day. Because once it's out there in the literature, it's quotable. Mm-hmm. And people can can just, uh, you know, uh, bend it to whatever um, they purpose they need it. So I thought that was a very important you know point. It, it told me that, you, yeah, it, it aligned with my own discerning nature and, you know, to be critical, uh, in critical thinking, et cetera. So, I would tell you that I'm a hard reviewer. I'm I'm I'm, um, I'm tough uh, on things because uh, of these purposes. but well, d- duty
0: is an interesting word, right? You know, it, yeah. Just to come back to that, because I I would wholeheartedly and passionately agree with that with the use of that term. And uh, you know, as an editor of a journal now, I, I do find it interesting when when folks um, will decline reviewer invitations, yet. You know a week later or a week before their submission comes through the journal and I, or
2: I, or better yet yeah. they want to be on your board
0: sure yeah exactly it's it's uh it's it's interesting I don't know whether it's a it's a, a microcosm lack of insight there or whether i mean clearly I guess they don't feel a duty to that to that greater scientific well, process and methodology you know Another
2: thing that Mike that Mike Sarr, uh, you know, he's the head editor of Surgery, has been for 22 years. So um, another thing he's sort of brought out is this concept of citizenship in the community. Um, and yeah, as an Eagle exactly. Scout, previously for me, I, I get that entirely. You know, and you get that merit badge. It's part of part of the way to get to become an Eagle. You have to do citizenship in the community. Well, the same thing holds in in our field. Mm-hmm. Is that this is part of um, you know your your if you're an academic, it's really a component of the job, and you're exactly right. If you want your your work to be um, um, judged uh, fairly, uh, well, um, and with uh, value, um, you you have to put in your own hours yourself to understand how that's done and and contribute. So, I'll tell you some other thoughts on this. Um, I, I like the literature. You know, basically because I'm an investigator. If you're an investigator and you want to put your work out there, you have to learn how to navigate the literature and and uh, to use it to your advantage uh, for dissemination. Um, I, I like thinking. I like um, chasing um, questions. I like creative approaches, and and more than anything else, I actually like writing. Uh, which I I didn't think I did in my early life, but, um, you know, when you get into it and you start doing it, you get into the process of it. And and that's why, uh, you know, the literature is attractive to me. So I think of writing as the ultimate form still of dissemination of knowledge. And you can argue that, like what we're doing here with the podcast, is the new world, and uh, there are, you know, other ways of this getting out there, but, you know, people will basically look back and say, if it's down on paper, um, it, it is meaningful, right? So, you know, the literature is our history in a lot of ways, and it's our path forward after that. And so the best advice I'd give to to the young people who are getting out there as investigators, you know, is you've got to have projects and uh, papers that have a purpose, you're wasting your time you're wasting other people's time and you're likely to get rejected if you're just rehashing something in a new um with a new flavor uh, on it and you have to know what the literature already holds out there if there are 20 papers on pseudopapillary tumor uh, uh histories uh, uh you know that there's no room for more value from that at this point
0: yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that's so, a great point. We we just re- recently had uh, um, Dr. Flaciano on, on the podcast. And, you know, I, one of the things he and I talked about was a command of the history of the, of the literature. And re- reviewing, quite honestly, is such a great way to do that. It's uh, it's really underappreciated.
2: Well, actually, I'd, I'd take off on that in a different way. I'd say the reviewing actually puts you in the
0: vanguard
2: of what is out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So I probably read, you know, this may be a... A fault at this point but i probably spend more of my i know i do i spend more of my time reading a lot of stuff that's not going to get published um that never makes it then i do the actual published journals Um, that's just the nature of where i am with this process at this point but what it does do is it opens your eyes to what are people thinking how are they attacking things and, you know, what's uh, what's the nature of the investigative field at this point? So it's sort of like an intelligence, a form of intelligence in a way, to know where is the leading edge right now? And you can take that back to um, help your own research uh, processes. You get ideas, not that you're copying them. I'm not suggesting that. You're not pilfering ideas, you know, um, uh, projects and such. You're, but you get methodologic ideas, you get to see what the field is going um, and how you can write your papers to get to that published point.
1: Dr. Vollmer, you know, one of the the recurring themes uh, on the podcast that you've brought up uh, in in this conversation and other guests have brought up is this idea of having a passion and and really going after it, uh, like clearly what you have with the pancreas. Uh, But, you know, there's sort of this other Strategy of uh, approaching projects and research, which is to sort of have multiple pots in the fire or lots of side hustles. Yeah. What What advice mm-hmm. do you have to young trainees, and and, and do, do you have a, an, a preference on either approach, or do you think it's an individualized sort of thing?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, I think you're a, a creature of your environment for sure, and. For some people, you're going to be in very fortunate situations to have great mentors and um, um, icons that can show you the way, and other people aren't, unfortunately. But uh, you can overcome that with your own passion um, and and drive. Uh, I think you, you brought something about pots in the fire. And it's, I do think it's very important for the young uh, people coming out. You should maintain... Your plural potentiality as far as you can go, with that, um, and you know I, I did that on an academic term in terms of clinical interest, research interest, educational interest, and leadership interests. And at the outset, you know, when I had energy, the energies and the the um, you know time wasn't uh, that important to me, et cetera. I was just finding a way to keep my toes in each of those domains. Same thing to be said in terms of your research process. It's going to be very limited. I think any good research, whether it be basic science or not, the people who've really, really done well um, and had huge successful careers have been flexible uh, and have had um, different um, lines of attack that they pursue. This, you know, this goes to the basic scientist icons, too. They don't just get into one thing, one idea, and one way to attack it because ultimately those things find they have a shelf life and they burn out. So you got to sort of be nimble. So I would say from a research standpoint, you need to keep that poor potentiality. Maybe you should be doing a little bit of outcomes research. You should have a little bit in a clinical trial realm. Um, you know, you could do practice based stuff, you can do big database. Kind of stuff, you can do methodology stuff. So, find your find you know, there's value in all these things, find the ones that uh, ultimately you'll narrow in on with an expertise. So, I'd say, you know, basically, your research needs to have a big picture plan. Um, it can't just be, oh, I like this, you know, uh, idea and let's just go for it um, capriciously or, or haphazardly. You basically have to have a bigger, long term process to it. Um, And the questions need to sort of build up to the higher relevance, ultimately. You can't be thinking you're going to swing and hit a home run at the outset of your career. I would encourage you to build building blocks along the way. Now, surgeons, uh, we as surgeons are primarily clinicians. So we need to apply our work for value and improve the field. And I think that's just been the underpinning of everything I've done. It's been to come to something at the end of that paper or the end of the project or the presentation you give. you got got to come to something that offers a path forward. And the one thing I always say to my scholars is, you know, have the next paper in mind when you're writing your current paper. And if you're really good, you're going to foreshadow what that next paper what, what the moves will be in that next paper in, uh, you know, sort of your the discussion and conclusion, uh, area. And, uh, sort of, it's like a chess game. You're always looking ahead, be ahead of, uh, the rest of the field. Um, and if you are, you will get published, um, uh, because you're going to be pushing the boundary, uh, in terms of productivity. Um, I think, if you're starting out, the best thing you can do is go find yourself an engine for your chassis. Um, you got to get young people involved. And I was really um, blessed uh, to, to meet Wande Pratt. He started the whole um, gig for me back at Harvard Medical School. He was a, a student, he was on my service. He said, I like the things you're doing, I like this idea of a care path that you developed. I'd like to study that a little bit more. Boom, boom, boom. Can I take a year off uh, and um, study under you? And I'm like, perfect. You know, I was one or two years out of my pra- starting and I was like, I need a horse to ride. And uh, one day with that. And then fortunately in the years uh, since I've had about a decade's worth of, of, young scholars here at Penn called Harrison scholars. And and what they have, is they have the energy and they have the skill sets. Um, my statistical knowledge was good in, in 2000, uh, and now we're 20 years later. Um, I rely on the youngsters to keep me in the uh, vanguard of what's going on with skills necessary, and then um, you know we fuel each other. I feel like I'm the conductor and they're the engine, and I think that's really important. And the last thing I'll say about this this question, this thing about you know developing your research and and, and that's something Elliot Shakoff taught me. He was the, the chairman at, at Beth Israel Deaconess as I was leaving that institution. He took over, but he's very much out there, um, with this idea of owning a question and you got to find out what that question is. For me, it's clearly pancreas fistula. Um, you know, I, I want to know everything about it and I want to possess it. I want to own it and, and master it and, and get to the bottom of it. And and Elliot makes the point that you know everyone's got this in them. Everyone's got that question. Um, you just got to sort of uh, uh, find the way to answer it. And, and there's so many options and, and so many ways to to go about things, particularly in the, in the current academic um, environments. That there should be a way to get there.
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.